from the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday, June 28th, 2021. I've um, wanted to have this guy on the show for a long time, and I'm glad we're finally able to make it work. His technical title is, is, is assistant editor, um, but I don't think that's the right title for him because he's done everything from doing taste testing to hand gliding to actually covering golf events in the last like three months. So we're going to roll through as much of this as we can. From Golf.com and Golf Magazine, James Colgan joins us. Good morning, James. Good morning. Hello. Um, did I appropriately give you the right intro? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I would. Uh, I'd appreciate it if my bosses heard uh, that little bit about uh, <laughs> that little bit about my title because uh, yeah, I've definitely been bouncing around, uh, bouncing around all over the globe for the last uh, last few months here, and very happily so. It's been it's been a really fun run of uh, seeing some very unique places and doing some very unique things. Um, I was joking with a friend recently that uh, that said that they are earning enough frequent flyer miles and enough hotel points that they'll be able to like plan their vacations. It feels like for the next eighty years. So that's what you have to look forward to, James. Being able to plan your vacations on certain airlines, wherever they fly to it, on certain hotels for you know however long. Um, we're talking the morning after the Travelers Championship, which was one of the more bizarre um, two and a half hours of playoff golf you'll ever see. Uh, it's been a while since we've had an eight-hole playoff on the PGA Tour. The biggest takeaway for me from that, James, um, and, by, and, and by the way, technically, James writes the Hot Mike media column for Golf.com, and we'll write about basically everything. He's done a bunch of funky things recently, but... He he will cover everything serious to completely uh, uh, lighthearted. Is that that crowd in Hartford yesterday? I felt like knew how to be pro somebody. It was pro Bubba at first, and then it was pro Kramer Hickok, and yet be respectful to the other person, which wound up being the eventual winner, Harris English. And I think that atmosphere is something that that if every event. Um, copied in terms of fan decorum we'd be in a great place in this country uh, a golf fan wise because that is the right way to be pro somebody and yet respectful for everybody else that's you know i think i think that tournament over the years has developed like some of or one of the best reputations on tour as far as uh, fan engagement is concerned because it seems like every year the crowd rolls into tpc river highlands and they bring the energy with them for the week whatever it is i feel like every year we wind up getting a very meaningful storyline out of the travelers and it's not necessarily from the outcome of the tournament although Surely that was the case yesterday, but I think it, it has a lot to do with just the environment. There are fans who are really passionate about golf. It's in an area that is absolutely golf crazy, and yeah, 
it just it makes sense that that it would work. Um, but I will admit, I, I I think it's funny because it's probably next to the Northern Trust, the event on the PGA Tour calendar that is closest to my hometown, which is New Hyde Park, New York, on Long Island. And uh, I always think about when I think about golf in my hometown, I think about Beth Page Black, yeah. and the U.S. Opens, and the PGA Championships over the years. Um, and I never think about fan decorum as being uh, associated <laughs> with Beth Page Black, but it's very true. It's a, it's it's a golf crazy part of the of the U.S., especially in the Northeast. Um, and I think the fans are have a lot to do with, at least as far as the travelers is concerned, uh, establishing it as an event on the PGA Tour schedule that's worth watching even when it comes immediately after a major championship. And gets a field worthy of it after a major championship on the exact opposite coast of the country. Um, yeah. Which is really impressive. Um, and to the point about Bethpage, I was there in 02 on Sunday, and yeah, that place... Uh, Went a little berserk, uh, to say the <laughs> least, uh, especially after the rain delay when uh, some people of a certain age were able to get some beverages within them. Um, the other thing I think to come out of yesterday is that we have in golf um, created kind of a, a, a second tier of players recently. Um, you've got the guys who are top of the world, and then you've got this this next level, and obviously Will Zalatoris, I think, is the is the guy, whether it's the Owen Wilson comparisons or whether it's just the fact that this guy who, because of the pandemic, has this status that's no status and yet full status and he's in all these majors. And I would put now Kramer Hickok right there in terms of a whole legion of fans that now know who this person is, respect the heck out of this person, um, and just what a performance, gutsy putt after gutsy putt after gutsy comeback. And even after... You know, Harris hits it close on whatever hole that was. I won't attempt to name what which playoff hole that was because they all kind of became the uh, uh, playoff hole at some point yesterday. But to be able to hit that chip long on purpose, knowing he probably had to drain it, match play mentality, and then drain that second putt, um, this is a kid that's got so much upside, and I can't wait to see where this takes us next. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think something that's, that's worth pointing out about Kramer particularly and also about Will to bring both of them up is that both of those guys are, are two players who sort of wear their hearts on their sleeve when they play. And something that, you know, we always talk about in golf is we want guys who are, you know, going to be engaged with the fans who are willing to, you know, really, really be their truest self in public because, you know, when you have a, a, PGA Tour filled with guys who don't necessarily have sanitized messages from their sponsors and, you know, their marketing partners and all of that, but who are true human beings and act that way at all times. I think it's a great thing for the game when you have people that are like that. And I think you could certainly say that about both Will and about Kramer, is that both of those guys are terrific personalities for the game of golf it, irrespective of you know what whatever their various levels are of success are I, I was pulling for Kramer yesterday although Harris English had a terrific performance certainly worthy of uh, coming away a victory 
But yeah, I, I mean, I think there's something to be said for that. That you know, this next generation of PGA Tour players, uh, I, I hope a big emphasis among them is building their own personal brand, and not in a way where you know it's incredibly sanitized and and sponsor heavy, but in a way in which fans believe they're getting the authentic version of that player. And I think you could you could easily say that about the two of them, and I, I hope that it that continues to be a uh, a uh, trend as as the months and years go forward here. James Colgan with us and teeing it up from golf.com and golf magazine for golf.com. Uh, that that's a perfect segue because you were there at um there in in Dublin at the memorial um when the whole John Rom storyline started and um kind of take us inside the ropes for a second here because you're there covering the event and and, and us on TV we saw CBS about to sign off Jim Nance being counted down in his ear and someone in the truck realizes that John Rom the leader by 6 after the third round has been told by somebody some horrible news and someone in the truck had the wherewithal to wave off that sign off and stay on the air as somebody covering were you even uh, close to this were you talking to somebody else were you you know on some other story because what I think is remarkable about what happened with John Rahm is it had this visceral reaction from those of us on TV because I feel like we saw it maybe ahead of some of the on-site media and then it took the on-site media you know, a couple minutes to kind of catch up because you may have been talking to somebody else or writing a story and, and totally understandably uh, so. Um, no criticism, but I think that got so much attention because of it was you know in front of millions of people on millions of televisions. So from your perspective there in Ohio, where were you and what was going through your head? <laughs> it's funny you ask that because uh, that day I'd woken up and I decided, you know, I was gonna I was gonna see what happened as far as the leaders were concerned. Of course, there were basically uh, one and a third rounds of golf being played that day because there had been rain on Thursday and Friday in Dublin, and so uh, I knew that there was there were going to be some leaders that were going to be finishing up in the afternoon on Saturday who played the later portion of their second round on Saturday morning. Um, so I woke up on Saturday morning and I saw that uh, that John Rahm had hit an ace on the 16th hole. And I said, huh, that's, that's an interesting storyline. Like he, he sort of came in, he was in contention at that point. I'm, I'm not sure if the ace actually put him into the lead or just sort of left him very, very near the top of the leaderboard. But so I decided, by the time Rahm had teed off for his actual third round on Saturday in the beginning of the afternoon, that I was going to try to follow him for a few holes and see what was going on with his game particularly because I've always found John to be a, a really fascinating figure. Um, he obviously, as we all know, wears his heart on his sleeve, um, but I, I think he's just such a terrific golfer and his skill is just out of this world. And so when I was uh, trying to formulate a plan for the day, I decided like, you know, I think John is going to be the storyline rather than write, you know, a gamer just sort of setting the scene for Sunday. I might try to focus on John a little bit and get a little bit more of a uh, of a real zeroed in uh, 
approach on his, you know, on, on what his day looked like. So I went out, I caught John on, I believe, the 10th hole, and I started walking with him uh, basically all the way through the back nine. Um, and when we hit, I think it was the 12th or 13th hole, um, it was the 13th. I, I, I saw the way that he was striking the ball and the way that he was executing really difficult shots. And at this point, he had already stressed his lead to, I think, four or five strokes. Um, and I said, my goodness, like, I, I'm not sure we've ever seen John Rob play this well in, in, uh, you know, his entire career. He's obviously had some huge wins, but, you know, I, I was truly started to believe around that point that the thrust of my story that evening was going to be about how John Rahm was playing the finest golf that we had ever seen John Rahm play. And so the afternoon goes on. I follow him down to the 16th hole again where he made the ace earlier in the day. And I'm standing right next to him on, on the tee box. And I watch as you know he strikes his approach. He hits this perfect little fade that looks like it's all over the stick. And it winds up coming to rest seven or eight yards away from the pin. And he turns to his caddy at that point and says, man, I thought that was in. As in, he thought he had made a second ace on the same hole in one day. And so I said, oh, man. That's the perfect detail to explain just how good John Rahm is playing right now. He thought he had had an, he was surprised that he didn't have two aces on one hole in the same day. So I'm like ready to roll. I come up down the 17th and 18th as Rahm's teeing off behind me on the 17th. And I'm like, oh man, this is going to be such a good story. I've got, you know, so many interesting things to, to sort of talk about. I picked up a bunch of nuggets about his round. I thought this little nugget from his conversation on the 16th tee box was going to be the perfect story, you know, the perfect way to encapsulate how, he, how well he was playing. So I hustle back to the media center. I'm sitting there as he comes up the 18th. I watch as he extends his lead to six strokes. Like, oh, man, perfect. This story is, you know, come together before my eyes. And I'm probably about 300 words in, maybe 400. And uh, I look up at the screen right as he puts out on the 18th. I'm, I'm changing scores in my, in my story to confirm what his final score was on the whole. And I, <laughs> I turn around. And all of a sudden, I see that he is crouched over in this just look of absolute shock. And so around me in the media center are a few other reporters, and all of them are saying the same thing. What is going on right now? Because we hadn't heard anything from the PJ Tour. We hadn't heard anything from anyone about what might be happening. We didn't know if this was something involving his family. We knew he had a newborn child. There was just an element of just, you know, sheer uh, uh, uncertainty of, of, you know, complete unknowingness of what was going on. And then all of a sudden, fortunately, uh, the, the very bright minds at CBS decided to stay on the broadcast until we figured out what happened, which purely was not an easy decision, but was absolutely the right one yeah um and they, they filled they filled the time and we figured out what was going on it was a COVID test uh that 
Rom had come back positive, and I remember the first thing that I did was just hit the backspace button on all, all six or seven paragraphs I had already written, deleted the entire thing, and then I messaged my boss and our, uh, my matching editor, um, and I, I messaged both of them, and I said, hey, there's a situation going on involving John. Uh, my story, uh, I'm not going to file something on this gamer because we're get, this is going to be the story of the week. Um, so I'm going to get out and start reporting on that. I'll, I'll come back in a little bit. Um, and yeah, and then I was off to go report on my second John Rom story, essentially, in the span of the last six hours. And it was a lot of, uh, at that point, you know, we, we didn't really have access to John. We didn't have access to anyone in John's camp. So it was a lot of dealing with press conferences and talking to people about, you know, what was going on, talking to his playing partners. Um, and, yeah, it was it was truly a, a remarkable moment in the PGA Tour season. Um, I, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit. I, you know, I'm graduated from Syracuse, and I was hired, very fortunate to get hired at Golf.com, uh, Golf Magazine, only a few months after graduation. And so that was late 2019. My first golf tournament as a member of media was March of 2020. I was at the uh, Players' Championship. Oh, in, oh my God. And so I got sent down there. I was so excited to cover the tournament. And then, of course, you know, midway through the tournament, I ceased covering a golf tournament. And I started covering a, the outbreak of a pandemic. Um, and it was certainly one of the craziest experiences of my life. And then I came back. I didn't go to another tournament until I went to the Masters in April of this year. Um, I went to the Masters. Fortunately, that was about as normal as things could get on that front. And then I headed back to the Memorial, and that Memorial was my third tournament. So I was sitting there after the ROM news happened, and you know this is obviously not reflective of, of the important part of the situation, but I did have a moment in which I kind of just looked at myself in the mirror, and I was like, my goodness, like, why do all these crazy stories keep happening when I'm at golf tournaments? Because there's something going on. Every time I'm here, there's just another crazy thing going on. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Um, I, I was gutted for John. He is obviously a consummate professional um, and, and that entire scenario. I don't think there was anything that he could have done, you know, short of getting a vaccination earlier that would have prevented what happened. Um, I, I don't think that he, you know, that the situation could have been handled any differently. I think it was just a really, really difficult thing um, that we watched, you know, a player, and I, I wrote this after the U.S. Open, you know, John had said, this is going to be a moment in which I, you know, my my sort of character is revealed. I, I forget what his exact yeah. worth was. And, you know, I, I, I thought, his performance at the U.S. Open was very indicative of the grace and the impressiveness with which he handled that entire situation. Because I'm not sure there are many, perhaps any, tour pros who would have responded to that in the same way. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a very wild experience overall from the side of the reporter. Uh, it was, you know, one of those moments you always hear old journalists, especially 
you know, coming up through the ranks in sports journalism. They talk about you know, deleting their their game stories and fixing everything when something crazy happens late, you know, in the eleventh hour. Uh, that was a hundred percent what happened to me at the Memorial Tournament. But you will not hear me complaining about that because uh, it was a crazy story. Obviously, I, I you know would not wish that on anyone. Um, but it was uh, it, from the perspective of a reporter and as someone who who loves getting out into the field and relishes every opportunity to get out, you know, cover the stories as they're happening. It was uh, a really invigorating experience and one uh, I certainly learned a lot from uh, in the aftermath of. James Colgan with us here on Teeing It Up. Uh, first of all, fantastic story, well told. Um, second of all, hear, here on John Rahm and his professionalism. A lot of guys would have argued, tried to play as a single, tried to figure out a way to finish that and there's a whole precedent problem if you let him go out there as a single because then the guy in 45th is going to request the same thing if it happens with him and for him to say guys don't be mad don't be you know don't be aggravated the most important thing is I'm fine my family's fine my baby's fine my parents are fine um that was the most important thing and to fast forward to Tory the thing that I don't think has gotten enough attention James, in the aftermath of everything that happened on that Sunday when everybody backed up, is it's one thing if you're trying to make a run from behind and you hit it to six feet on the last two holes and have straight up hill putts. That's nice. <laughs> he made two sidewinders. <laughs> like, those are some of the hardest putts, especially for a right-hander, left to right, you know, putts to make. It's not like he gave himself the easiest of, of, of putts. Those are two of the most remarkable made putts you will ever see to win any tournament, you know, and, and in a major especially, and in that pressure. And we talk so much about his ball, uh, uh, ball striking and so much about his piercing ball flight, but at both Memorial and Torrey, what ultimately paid off was that putter. Well, I, Jeremy, I think you bring up a really good point about the end of that uh, tournament, and this is not, you know, this. I don't, I don't mean to criticize anyone in saying this. I, I'm respectful of, you know, everyone's opinions in the golf space, um, but I thought it was interesting seeing how much was made about Torrey Pines as a U.S. Open host. Uh, particularly on the basis of it being a very boring golf course, yeah. um, and I, you know, I was I was really fortunate to play Tory Pines in April. I just lucked out, wound up on a very fun little trip for work, uh, and I was able to play Tory. And you know, I, I understand where the people who really care about golf course architecture have have critiques of the way that that course is laid out. Um, Sure, you know, could there be more to the design and to the layout? Absolutely, and I think those, you know, those critiques are, are well founded. Um, but in that same respect, I had this conversation a week before the U.S. Open. I said, you know, we always talk about in golf how the best major championship venues and the best courses always seem to present themselves to the best champions. And so when you look through the history of golf. You know, the best courses, when tournaments are at the best courses, it seems they always have a, have a way of crowning the true champion at the course. I mean, you look at Tiger Woods and Augusta National, and <laughs> I don't need to go much further than that to, as in defense of that point, but you can certainly look through the history of the game and see that 
littered throughout the, the list of major championship hosts. And I, I was having this conversation with a coworker, and I said, you know, maybe Tory Pines isn't a great major championship host, but it gave us one of the greatest U.S. Opens ever in 2008. And if we get another great U.S. Open in 2021, who are we to say that it's not a great major championship venue, even if the course is maybe a little bit blasé? That doesn't mean that it that it should be eliminated from hosting a national championship. And so, you know, we had this conversation, and uh, my coworker, you know, made the point that, you know, maybe that's just, you know, maybe we won't see another great tournament in 2021. And even if we do, maybe that won't be proof positive of it being the golf course uh, that is sort of responsible for that. And I thought after all of the conversation about Tory Pines last week and everything that went on and all the criticism, I thought it was so fascinating how John Rahm won that tournament in perhaps the most dramatic way we've seen a, seen a player win a tournament since Tiger's win in 2019 at the Masters uh, and how he did it, draining those two huge butts, those huge breakers on Sunday to win it on back-to-back holes to close it out. I thought, how could you look at this golf course and not think that this is a worthy major championship test? It's We've given it two U.S. Opens, and it's given us two of the most memorable majors we've had in years, years in professional golf. And so I, I thought, particularly for John's, rent, John's win, not only was it a dramatic finish, but it was a dramatic finish involving a worthy champion who was being coordinated for the first time in their career. Uh, I, I thought... You know, for all of the criticism that Tory received, and you know, a lot of it, you know, may, might have been very well founded. Uh, it's hard for me to get past that point that you know, great golf courses give us great champions. And I, you know, say what you will about Tory Pines as a golf course, but we've had two U.S. Opens there, and we've gotten two terrific champions and two terrific championships. And that's really any anything that and all that we can ask for from from a national championship host. Same thing that Dan Hicks said to you. Same thing that was said on the Golf Channel NBC conference call. Just give us anything close to 08 and we'll be happy. Just give us anything close. We, we, look, we don't need a, you know somebody injured. Uh, just give us all, anything close. And they sure got something close. And, 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 and the ratings support that. Um, all right. It's time, James. Let's do it. Um, you and part of your on uh, um, part of your adventure across America tour um, is it hang gliding? Is it parasailing? What is the correct term for what you did off of the Torrey Pines um, coastline there? And the video and folks go to golf.com. Look at the video. It's priceless. It's authentic. It's nerves plus am I crazy plus. <laughs> I have corporate health insurance, I think, plus just sheer, I guess this is an assignment and I got to do it, um, youth coming out. Um, so A, what is the, what is the, the uh, correct term and, and, and B, um, would you recommend this for um, other human beings? <laughs> so, all right. So I'll tell you the full story of how this came about. Um, and. And only, only because I like you, because I think that this makes me sound uh, even more crazy when I tell the full context of how this story came. If you came say together. so, bro. If you so, say so, so I'm uh, I, 
then I'm going out to, I get assigned, I come back from the Masters, and I get assigned uh, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, I come back, I am at one of the all-time exhaustion highs of my life. I haven't slept in what feels like a week. I am, you know, overworked, I'm burnt out, and so I'm, I'm just trying to take it easy for one day and, you know, catch up on some sleep. And my boss reaches out to me and says, hey, uh, what are you doing next week? And, you know, I'm thinking that maybe he's gonna ask me to, you know, go to some event around around the metro area in New York, which is, you know, where I'm situated now, or, you know, maybe he's going to ask me to, to, you know, spend some time uh, playing golf or, you know, take a day off or something. I'm not, I'm, honestly, I have no idea what he's going to say to me. And he says, you know, say, I don't think I'm doing anything. I'm going to be in New York. You know, I'm not sure really what's going on yet, but I, I don't think I have anything planned. And uh, he says, all right, great. Uh, what's your interest in flying out to California next week? And I've never been to the West Coast, right? I had never been. And so I was like, very high. I would love to go. And he says, all right, great. We have this U.S. Open preview day event through the USGA. You're going to fly out to San Francisco. You're going to spend a few days there. You're going to play the Olympic Club. And then you're going to fly to San Diego, play Torrey Pines. And then you'll come back and uh, you'll write about the experience. And, you know, while you're there, we want to encourage you, you know, do whatever touristy stuff you can. Get as much as you can from the uh, from the travel experience because people really take a lot out of that when, you know, when you can get the full, like, sort of cultural life experience out of going on a, going on a trip and visiting a place for golf. Golf fans generally tend to associate that because if they're going to travel somewhere to go and play golf, they want to be doing those things too. So, you know, the last advice that I needed at any point was any sort of encouragement to go out and, uh, and you know, do touristy things on my own, see places on my own because I love doing that to begin with. And so I start doing some research into the, uh, into the area and things I can be doing in San Francisco and San Diego and you know we have the whole we have the whole lineup set and so I hop on a call with my boss just to sort of discuss my general ideas and whatnot and he sort of mentions in passing you know oh a few years ago we had tried to have one of our writers go out and, and uh, do the paragliding uh, experience the hang gliding experience at Torrey Pines um, but you know, that the last second they sort of chickened out, it didn't work, um, and we couldn't get it together. But he was like, obviously, you know, we wouldn't ask you to do that, but like, you know, that's just like, you know, we're looking for ideas sort of like that. But as soon as he mentioned this, the opportunity to do the paragliding and hang gliding, my eyes lit up because I am a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, and I absolutely love Anytime I can get out and see a place and do something like that, do whatever it is that is, you know, the local tradition or, you know, the, the thing to do when you're out in that in that city or that place, uh, I have a big life credo that I'm just going to do it, whatever it is, be it, you know, if it's eat some sort of crazy food, if it's do some sort of crazy excursion, if it's jump off a cliff, like I'm going to do that. And so I look into the paragliding and... I realized, you know, the para, the glider port, as it's called, which is the area that you, uh, if you are to do this, it's the area you jump off a cliff, um, is right next to the 12th green at Torrey Pines. And my hotel is not far from the 12th 
tee box at Torrey Pines. And so I kind of put the two and two together. I call the place up and I say, hey, uh, you know, my name is James Colgan. I write for golf.com and I want to come in and shoot a video of me going paragliding with you guys. Is there any way I can make that happen during the day set up there? And they say to me, you know, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you, but, you know, we just don't think it's going to work. Your time frame, just like we, we normally will only do rides between the hours of 12 and 4 p.m., and I was only available after 5. And so I said, but, you know, we won't make any promises yet. Call us on the day of, and, you know, if it works, then, then you know, we'll try to get you out there. So I go, I play Torrey Pines on that Wednesday I'm on the 16th tee box. I'm playing golf with uh, none other than Mike Wan, the, the new CEO of the USGA. And I excuse myself from the tee box, and I call the hang gliding place, and I say, hey, I want to come out for a ride uh, this afternoon. I've got, you know, I'm going to be done in about an hour. We'd spoken about a week ago, and you said to call me. Is it possible if I come in an hour, will, you know, will you be able to have me? And they say, all right, head over here as quickly as you can. No promises that's going to work, but if you get out, like maybe we'll be able to get you out here, but you just got to get here as quickly as you can because if the wind changes, then they can't get you up in the air, and it's a whole thing. So I hustled through my last two rounds. I quickly, my last two holes, I quickly finish off on the 18th green, have my handshakes. I run back to the hotel. I drop my, I drop my golf clubs, and then I quite literally run on foot from the hotel that I'm staying in to the Torrey Pines Glide Report. And as I'm running over there, I walk in the door, and the woman who's working behind the counter looks at me, and she says, are you the guy from golf.com? And I say, yes. And she says, great, you're the last ride we're doing today. We can get you out. It's time to fill out all of your injury waivers and stuff. So the thing that nobody tells you about about doing this thing is, you know, of course, yes, they, they will make you fill out an injury waiver just like if you were to jump out of a plane or do any sort of other stuff. But what they don't tell you is that the injury waiver that you have to fill out is – takes roughly, and this is not a joke, about 15 minutes to fill out the entire thing. You have to fill about nine pages of initials, about nine pages of signatures, and then once you're done with all of that, then, and only then, you have to stand in front of an iPad and read out a statement saying that you are not, that uh, the company is not liable should anything happen to you while you are jumping off this cliff and in the air. So I get through all of that. I've sprinted. I've played golf. I've sprinted from my hotel after calling them on the 16th or 17th tee box. I've sprinted from my hotel and gotten there in time. And now I'm standing here, and I've filled out my injury waiver. I've taken the 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, I'm standing on the edge of a cliff, and I'm about to jump off with a parachute over my head and a guy behind me. And we're about to go paragliding together. And it's at this precise moment that I realized I haven't told a single soul that I am about to jump off of a, a cliff. Um, so it only dawns on me as I'm literally strapping the helmet to my head. So I reach out to a few of my friends from home because I was certainly not going to reach out to my parents before I did this. And uh, I say to them, hey, I send them a video of myself. I say, I'm standing on the edge of this cliff and I'm about to jump off. If I, you know, if I make it through this, I'll text you in an hour. If not, you know, you know where I am. <laughs> so we get up in the air uh, about 
less than five minutes after that and I was in the air for about a full hour we did a loop over the cliffs we uh, were back over the golf course and I got to see the golf course from up overhead um, we went back down over the water um, and as some people know is the nudist beach which is next to the uh, next to the golf course uh, and we went through the whole thing it was unequivocally one of the coolest life experiences I have ever had in my life it was just one of a kind in, in every sense of the word. Um, I was had a smile plastered to my face from the second we took off to the second I got back. Um, and I was, I was nervous. I was shaking my boots as we were standing on that cliff because it hit me for the first time really then. Like, oh man, I'm about to do this. Um, but when I got up there, it was the coolest experience I think I've ever had in my life. Um, it was so special such a special thing to be able to say I did for work is jump off a cliff with the, with the parachute behind me. Uh, it was just an incredible memory, something that I will cherish forever uh, for, and for, certainly for as long as I'm in the industry. Um, and the kicker to the whole story is after I, I, you know, I took a video of myself doing it, I, I got to watch the whole thing. Um, and as soon as I got done, uh, I realized that I was going to be able to expense my entire trip so that was certainly the kicker to the story was that I did all of it and I did it for free because I was able to file it in the annals of expense report history to get my uh, <laughs> to get my trip expense after I jumped off the cliff. So yeah, it was a one of a kind experience. And yes, to answer your question, I would recommend anyone and everyone if you are if you love golf or if you just love adventure or if you don't love either of those things but you like pretty views. Get find Torrey Pines Glider Port. Get out to San Diego and La Jolla. Check it out and just pay the money and do it. It is one of the most special experiences you can have, and uh, it is certainly worth it. I, I can be an absolute uh, attestation to how amazing it, it truly is. I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, I'll say this: having messes with James a bunch over the last couple months. That giddiness that you heard as he re as he just retold that story is exactly the giddiness that he felt uh, shortly after coming off that and messaging with me. Um, he's been super pumped about this for a long time, and uh, that is a fantastic complete story as well. Uh, nothing like being on a work um, on work exhaustion and then being able to. Um, you know, translate that into, um, you know, having a wonderful, um, uh, a wonderful experience with, uh, some adventure, uh, kicking in as well. Um, who paves Magnolia Lane? Um, we're, we're not going to give all of this away because, um, we want people to read the story, obviously. But I would assume that paving Magnolia Lane has to be a terrifying experience because everybody that does anything with Augusta National, we have been made to feel, um, has to do it absolutely positively perfect. So what I'm curious about, um, and, and, and we'll leave the details for those to read the article on, on golf.com, but what I'm curious about is, did you get a sense from this person 
that it was terrifying and they were scared every day? Or is this something where there's something about Augusta National where these people actually feel comfortable in what would I think for the rest of us be one of the scariest roles of our lives, which is repaving one of the most famous roads in all of golf? Well, I would say I think there was an element of, uh, of nerves involved, at least for the members of Michael's team. Uh, Michael Caudill was, was the name of the man who was responsible. Um, I, I think there were some nerves for the members of Michael's team, uh, but I don't think he was too nervous, at least from what he said to me. And I think part of the reason for that is Michael has lived in Augusta for his almost his entire adult life. Um, and he, you know, his, his paving company is based out of Aiken, South Carolina, which is, you know, a short drive away from Augusta, Georgia. And so for him, you know, he, he lives a stone's throw away from the golf course. So paving the golf course would seem to be a natural fit. He's a paving company that's based not far away. And there's a golf course there that needs someone to pave the driveway. It certainly makes sense that they would hire Michael Caudill to do yeah. it. Um, and so I don't think he was too nervous about it in the sense of the awe of the golf course. Um, However, I certainly think that he was uh, that he was aware of the significance of, of what he was doing, um, because I think the people around him and, and the members on his team, from everything that I spoke to him about, I think they were all very interested and very nervous for the process of, uh, of handling the golf course. Um, I highly recommend that story from James Colgan. It, it's a side of Augusta National that yeah, you don't think about, but somebody has got to pave these roads uh, so that every car that comes through those famous gates um, has a smooth experience, which we've seen more recently on, on video uh, for the first time from Jack and his car and then Phil Mickelson and, and his vehicle. Um, a, a, a friend of mine, Alex Lazan, along with his friend Michael Russell, have, have a podcast, Course of Life podcast. They have always ended with food as the last segment. We're going to end with food as the last segment. But uh, before then, James, I have to ask you, covering the media beat here over the last couple of months, what for you is the biggest story in golf media right now? Oh, that's a great question. Huh. I think I would say the, the biggest story in golf media right now is what has been going on, I would say started with Fox and now seems to be getting carried on by CBS and NBC and the pivot towards innovation in golf broadcasts. Um, I think overarchingly, the golf broadcasts we're watching are getting smarter and they're getting better. Um, the speed at which that is happening is uh, is at times blazing and at times glacial. Yes. Uh, and there's not much of a uh, <laughs> of a true line between those two things. Um, it really depends on the month and depends on on the actors. Um, but I, I think the story that I've been interested in is golf fans. I think are really clamoring for a product that is going to give them uh, a more in-depth understanding of what we're watching on television every weekend. And I think we're making a lot of strides in the right direction. Um, I still think we have a, a long way to go. But a good example that, that I always think back on is 
uh, CBS Golf's new coordinating producer, Seller Shy, or New Edge, he started in uh, six months ago now. Um, he, when he was first hired and first joined the beat, one of his big innovations was what we see now every week is that constant score bug on the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Um, that is unquestionably a pain for whomever is in charge of doing that for CBS to keep updated for the entirety of the broadcast that's going on. But you can bet when I was watching the U.S. Open on NBC this this past weekend, I was wondering where that score bug was because when it's there, you are a more informed fan. You know what's going on. You're paying attention to what's happening on the leaderboard. You see it every second of the broadcast and it makes it a much more sort of colorful and and vibrant experience. I think all of those things, those advances, are going to continue coming in the years to come, and I hope they continue coming quickly, because the, the golf television product, as we all know, at times leaves a lot to be desired. Um, and I think the more that we can push toward the future, and the more that we can push toward innovation, the more we can sort of grind the gears of progress towards a product that a lot of golf fans can feel good about. Um, and that's something that is really important, not only to you know the fans and you know the true stakeholders in the game, but that it should be important to the broadcast networks and to the uh, the leagues and to the tours and, and everyone involved, because the broadcast is all that about ninety five percent of golf fans see of golf in their lives is what they watch on TV. And so if the product is bad, that means 95% of golf fans are seeing something that's that's underwhelming them in some aspect. And you know maybe there are fewer fans that join because of that. Maybe there are fewer people who watch. We'll never know what the impact is of having a truly great TV broadcast until we see it. Um, but there is a legitimate bottom line shaper, a bottom line difference that can come from having a really great television product. And so yeah, I think the biggest storyline is the path toward getting there, which seems to be sort of blazed through innovation. Um, I'm curious to see how, how that develops in the next six months, in the next year, in the next few years to come. Um, but things are trending in the right direction, which is something I feel confident saying after a long time of maybe not feeling uh, that way. But there is still definitely some work to do uh, as we head forward. I am with you on that. Um, I think the integration of more Shotlink staff is going to be really fascinating, especially with Shotlink 2.0, which is going to be able to give you strokes gained uh, on downhill left-to-right putts and on uphill right-to-left putts and just all the different machinations that will come from Shotlink 2.0. I think what Colt Notes has been able to do the the meteoric rise of somebody like Colt is something to watch. Shane Bacon being an Olympic broadcaster here and getting some play-by-play reps finally on air for Golf Channel NBC is going to be fascinating. This sport is getting younger, it's getting faster, it's getting more yearning for knowledge, and I think that's all a positive thing. We have literally 120 seconds to talk about the best thing you have eaten in 2021 on this food tour, which also included having Rory's go-to chicken sandwich from your own kitchen, which is a very quick trip. Um, so, of all the food things, what's the best? Oh, man, this is a difficult question, 
and for and for those who don't know, I've been doing food food video reviews from various golf courses uh, since the beginning of 2021. Uh, really, at the Masters was the first one that I did. Um, I'll be a homer, and you know this was this was a, a difficult decision on my part, um, and one that has caused me a lot of grief publicly. But I will say that the Masters chicken sandwich is, I believe, the best food that I've had. Uh, second only, or, for, or really, the only thing behind, even close to it is the burger dog. Um, and that was the, the Olympic Club's very famous food. Uh, both of those things were very unique food items in their own right. Uh, the Masters chicken sandwich is served cold, but it is very tasteful. Um, I survived a week of my life in which I didn't sleep and hardly ate uh, by all essentially only eating the master's chicken sandwich and so i will i will have to keep that as my uh, number one food because it was quite literally my only source of nutrition for about seven days of my life there in the beginning of april it's so good the turkey sandwich is so good and and that ice cream is just unreal oh, um, oh my god yeah the peach ice cream there's a whole nother review to be done on that literally I had like three other things I wanted to talk to you about, and we are we are fresh out of time up against a, a cold stop. We have a ton to talk about, including your Augusta experience, my Augusta experience, and the bizarre things that happened there. James Colgan from Golf.com and Golf Magazine, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Showing. This was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure for me as well. Uh, and thank you all for listening. At James Colgan 26 is his email. Uh, sorry, is is his Twitter handle. Subscribe, rate, review to T. And I'll see you next time.